Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Recently, I had a conversation with someone uh, when they were found out we were doing real theology and said, why are you doing this? Is it because it's trendy? Is it because it's fun? Is it because it's a challenge? Is it because you're trying to connect to culture? And I said, yes. I said yes to all of those. And then the conversation went on. We were almost getting in a bit of an argument about why would a church do this? And then they said to me, oh, I forgot the second word, theology. And then I said, yes, what we are doing is saying, what is the real and what is the theology? It's like putting on a purple pair of glasses for Lent and it's being able to see your notes. When we come to church, it's as though we're putting on a fresh pair of glasses to see the world differently and to hear and be more focused, awakened to our consciousness and to literally have a real and a theology, a newspaper and a Bible, a movie and an iPhone, all of these coming together to say what is the theological lens which we step into. And we've done this, this real theology for a number of years, although not recently, certainly during COVID. And last week, Andrea did such an amazing job of inviting us into the night, telling us what's coming up. We're stepping into the darkness. And I said in our worship planning, I remember a woman at Deer Park United Church when I was a minister there, she would say to me on the last Sunday of Epiphany, see you at Easter, I don't do Lent. There's a lot of people who say, I don't do darkness, I don't do shadow, I'll pick it up at the lilies and the sunrise service. But the truth of it is, the Christian tradition and the cycle of the year drives us into this place of darkness and drives us into looking at the shadow and our shadow. And it drives us into lament and confession and reflection. And it's good for you and for us that we may not want to go there. It invites us to the existential questions of life. And that is the great gift I think churches and synagogues and temples can provide for the world, a place to go to this place of discernment. The movie Oppenheimer came out in the summer. I remember going to the movie. That was when Oppenheimer and Barbie were the big movies and we did two in the summer because I couldn't resist. And I remember coming out of the Oppenheimer movie and it being the smokiest night ever at Chinook. And it was ominous because it spoke not just of our summer when the world was on fire, but on this movie. Robin Oppenheimer, who is the main character in the 1940s, is right around the, it's around the World War, Second World War, and he's a scientist. He is called the father of the atomic bomb. His picture was on the front of Time magazine. He is selected to be the head and lead of the Manhattan Project as they descend into the desert of New Mexico to create the atomic bomb. The team is called the Trinity. And it's the story of how the team comes together and struggles through their richness of capabilities to create a bomb. And then there's the question, now what if we use it? It's a complicated movie that's three hours long, and it's hard to simplify it, and I'm not trying to simplify it. It's like the theologian I remember who had done a workshop and got on a plane and sat down with somebody on the plane, and the person beside asked that question, what do you do for a living? And he said he was a theologian, and the person said, oh, uh, it all sums up with 
Jesus loves me, this I know. And then the theologian said to the other person, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm an astrophysicist. And the theologian said, I guess it's all summed up with twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> when we try to simplify, we can get in trouble. But the tension and conflict you see in Oppenheimer is this. At one point, he says, as he quotes the Bhagavad now I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. A key phrase, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, as he realized that he's used his skills to create something that will have incredible consequences. In this movie, there's another great line. It says, genius is no guarantee of wisdom. And so what you see is the scientists using all of their big brains to work hard with others to create without really thinking about the consequence of what they've created and what will happen. And Oppenheimer spends all of his time in the second part of the movie saying, is this really what we want to do? How many people will be killed? 210,000 to be exact when it's dropped in Japan. And there's all kinds of struggle as those around him try to disregard him and call him a communist. And there's all of this struggle about why didn't he stop? Why didn't he tell people? Why didn't they stop? And you see this in the struggle. But what about the theology? And here goes my confession. I decided to say, what does chat GDP say? What does chat GDP say? This is a little part of my sermon. You could talk this morning about theology, about the morality and ethics. What does it mean to have the ability to blow up the planet and planets? And then hold in our other hand words of Micah, we shall study war no more. Or the words in the prophecy, turning swords into plowshares. When is the violence we seek to hold and have and use, when is it appropriate or not? Is there such a time to use violence in such a way? And what do we make about a God who's so violent, smiting people in our scriptures? Could do a whole series on morality and ethics. Or how about redemption and guilt? The movie is filled with the angst you see of Oppenheimer wrestling with redemption and guilt as you see his own personal infidelities throughout the movie and then his own professional infidelities as he sees himself as the creator of the destroyer of the worlds. Redemption and guilt is theology. Or the tension between good and evil. Is war ever just? And what happens when politics and envy come into play and people try to tear each other down and discredit another person, goodness and evil. Or what about a whole sermon series on theory and practice? In the movie, there's a great line, theory can take you only so far and then there are things that are hard on the heart. Genius is no guarantee of wisdom. And you see this in the theory of practice of using our science for what purpose? Or existential questions, which I explored in the summer sermon, when we looked at what does it mean? And we see this movie and we have the capability of humans destroying each other and the planet and God's body, the earth. And how do we hold economics and the environment together, not as separate, but as co-partners to take care of the planet while we have an economy? And we heard throughout the VST series, the theologians reminding us that we are called to cultivate and take care of the earth. And what does that mean as human beings? 
For me, one, king, one key piece of this movie was Oppenheimer wondering, wondering about what he should do with his own power, his own agency. It's like the song from the Barbie movie, which we're not doing. The beautiful song, What Was I Made For? A beautiful song, What Was I Made For? could run through all of these movies we look at. My daughter's boyfriend, Jack, who's a movie buff, I asked him what did he think of this movie, and he said, here's the thing, we create things like Facebook with a good intent, and then it goes sideways. Facebook is about making a catch connection, but then it leads to FOMO, an identity crisis and destruction for many people, in particular young people like me. Regardless of the intention of something, it has unpredictable consequences that we need to be conscious of. Leaders, founders, politicians, managers, or whoever it is, have an important role when it comes to utilizing power and responsibility. Products are powerful. Thoughts and ideas are powerful. Nuclear bombs are powerful. And it's up to those leaders and everyone around to use it to minimize negative consequences. I think that is so true of the things that we create. We, we think they're going to be about something and what do they lead us to or the consequences of the things we create. I think in this movie, Oppenheimer is wondering about who am I, what do I do with the power that I have? And in a sense, that's what Lent is all about. You and I taking time to lament and confess and reflect and say, what do I do with the power that I have? And every one of us has power and agency. And every Lent begins with the reading that Carolyn read a few moments ago. Different gospel each year, but looking at the wilderness text, and it begins with the baptism of Jesus, the, the sky ripping apart, and a dove descending, and the voice, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And then if you heard it, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus didn't walk in there joyfully. He was driven by God. Even that is something to think about. How is it that God would drive Jesus into the wilderness? Perhaps it's because the wilderness is actually a good thing for us. A time and place. It's both space and place, the wilderness. And you all know it because we've all been there or maybe you're there right now. And it's in that wilderness story that he is tested by Satan. The word Satan means adversary. Who here doesn't have adversaries? People who are against us or challenge or pull us or stretch us. And we come up to that power and we wonder, who am I and how will I be in this place? And that's what Jesus did. Quite literally, when he enters into this place, he goes with the two questions that are asked by Satan. And they begin with, if, if you are the beloved child of God, then, then take the, bread, the stones and turn them to bread. And the second one, if, in second temptation, he's taken to the top of a pinnacle and says, if you are the child of God, then jump from here and angels will save you. And here in this place, we see a religion that's transactional. If you do this, this will happen. And Jesus wasn't about a transactional religion. If we pray the right words, do the right things, A plus B equals C. It was none of that. 
It was about transformation, not transaction. And finally, in the third temptation from Satan and all of this, he's taken to the top of the highest tower and says, all of this is yours if you want political power. And Jesus was not about political power, but transformational power. You see, Jesus was taking the agenda of winners and losers and saying, sorry, in the gospel, all win. All are one. Everyone belongs. All are children of God. I think that starting with the baptism is what held Jesus' feet to the fire when he wanted to run away from people who were going to say things about him, when he was entering into a difficult debate, when he was up against the military powers of the day. He heard in his heart and mind, you are a beloved child of God. And then he stepped one more step further on his journey. You see, the wilderness is both a literal place, and you might call it a certain place, but it's also a space in your soul. And that wilderness place is a place we are driven by the Spirit to discern our identity. Who am I really? Not what people say I am, but who am I? When I run into these kinds of problems, looking at a text, I call my Jewish friends and I call Rabbi Mark Lickman in the community and I said, tell me what wilderness is for Hebrew people. And he immediately texts back these words. He said, I love that question because the wilderness equals in the Hebrew tradition, it means midbar, which is speaking. The wilderness is literally speaking. And he goes on in the text to say, no wonder that if you look in the Bible, God often doesn't speak in the city or in a household or maybe even in a temple. God speaks in the wilderness. The wilderness as a speaking place is a place that invites us to therefore be the listener, to therefore be one who would listen to God. Richard Rohr says, the one essential task of religion is to reconnect people with their own true self. I love this. The whole point of all world religions, the goal is to help people connect to our truest self or to our truest identity. I love that because it invites us to begin to wonder, who am I in this place? So often we've forgotten who we are and whose we are. And Lent invites us to the wilderness to pose that question for ourselves in the wilderness place. The wilderness was a grounding place for Jesus and it can be a grounding place for you and I. Because if we really listen and start with the identity, I am a beloved child of God, then we can step more fully into the wilderness. We've forgotten who we are. People have forgotten who they are. But when we're reminded, we can do and be our truest self. Richard Rohr has worked with Brene Brown on updating my favorite book. If I could only take one book, it would be Falling Upward. In Falling Upward, he looks at the second half of life, and she does a beautiful introduction, and I read it last week when I was away. And it looks at how all of us step into place of order, disorder, and reorder. 
that we, we have a first half of life that is order, and then disorder, which is wilderness, and then reorder. Or you might say first half of life, second half of life. And the transition is the wilderness in between. Or if you want to go real theology, you go life, death, and resurrection. This pattern is central to our lives, religious or not. You see, in the first half of life, we're all about success and money and jobs and friends. Those are all important things. It's normal to be about ourselves in the first half of life. And that first half of life is the, the container. We're building the container for who we are. And then eventually something comes along. A few are like me. It was bang on 40. A midlife crisis comes with loss or death or disease or COVID or a failure. A time when we just thought everything we had and the bottom falls out. And in that disorder, in that wilderness, we are left with almost nothing if we're lucky. And it's in that wilderness place that we begin that discernment for ourselves. Richard Rohr says this, every day I pray for one humiliation. Every day, one prayer to say, bring me to the earth, humus. And it's in then, in that place which can sometimes be shorter and sometimes long, and we think we only do it once, but generally we do it several times in our life. We're lucky enough to fall upward, he says. You fall upward, and in that second half of our life, it doesn't mean a certain age, it's a certain space. We come to a sense of simplicity, of wisdom, of not having to know it all, to admit that we don't know it all, to be comfortable with not knowing everything, to be awake and conscious to where the Spirit is calling. You see, we all go from order to disorder to reorder. Maybe you're in that disorder wilderness right now. Certainly, COVID was the best example I can think of when we were all pandemic in that wilderness of unknowing. None of us had ever done this before and all that came through that time. For me, it was a loss of a marriage and some friendships. Or I remember earlier on in my life when I was 21, my brother died. At 21, I knew everything. I had the world all figured out. And suddenly my brother, who's 27, dies. And I'm going, huh? He lived a good life. Who is God? And a, a search and a wrestling in the best book that came to me at that time when bad things happen to good people says you have to give up a God who's in control and trust that God's not a puppeteer, but God is present to us. Or when I look at my own life, when I was 39, I knew everything. I knew everything. And when my world crashed, I realized I knew nothing. And I miss my dad so much because I was so arrogant, I knew so much. And I'd love to have a chat with him now and say, hey, really, how did this all work for you? You see, I believe it's about our identity. And here's some traveling tips as you step into this wilderness. Six things. First, pray. Whenever I'm going into a difficult conversation or different difficult situation, whether it's walking into a hospital or a home or a church, I say these words to myself, God be with me. That's all I say. God be with me. Second thing, you might be a writer. 
During COVID, I wrote 10,000 words that no one's going to ever see but me about what was going on in my house and my marriage. And it was therapy for me to write it because I got it down. So I was going, well, well, crazy. I needed to write, and maybe writing's yours. Or how about this one, number three, walk. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. He walked amongst the, the wild things, the scripture says. Get out and walk. Motion is lotion for you. And the second thing in that is, listen, that listening space of the wilderness in midbar. You might just hear when you touch that tree or listen to that water or see that sky. God might speak to your heart or mind. Number four, talk. When we're in our wilderness, we've got to talk to others. We've got to talk to advisors. We've got to talk to the angels in our midst, those who will help us see and hear things differently. When I was in a church at, at uh, Deer Park United, I was trying to think, could I go and work at United Way? And I gathered a listening circle. And a listening circle is people you gather, four or five people, and they don't advise you. All they do is ask you questions. They don't tell you what to do. They ask you a question for you to discern. I said to Carolyn today, Bill Phipps was one of my guys back then. 2004 and led me then to this place, a listening circle. Number five, um, we need to know this biblical text and stick it on your mirror and it might simply say, I am a beloved child of God. Because of hearing those words and saying them is what kept Jesus through the wild wilderness to keep strong, to be vulnerable, to be courageous, and to be wise in the difficulties he faced. Someone said this to me, this is getting close to the end, don't worry. He said the most important part of Sunday is the words of assurance. We are loved. We are. We are. We are. We are. We are. And we say that because that's who we are in our truest identity. And my last tip for the wilderness, and there's probably 20, is attend church. Show up here. Show up here when you don't want to. Show up here when you've given up. Show up here when you're angry. Show up here when you're sad. Show up here when you're happy. Show up here because we need you here in these pews and in this place to hear and be the body of Christ in the wilderness. We need you here. I end with a story. It's a true story of a man named Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper grew up in the late 1800s. And he grew up in a village and he was a bastard. And the kids in the neighborhood knew he was a bastard. And say, Ben Hooper, I know who you are, you're a bastard. And they teased him and bullied him until he himself felt like he was useless and a complete bastard. But he had a way in which he knew he could gain strength and he would show up at church and he'd come in and he'd sit in the back row and he'd listen to the choir. And it was the choir that he loved, not the sermons. <laughs> he loved to hear the music and he would stay and listen and close his eyes to what was happening. And one day he got up and realized, oh my gosh, the service is over and he went to the back door of the church and the priest said to him, I know who you are, Ben Hooper. And Ben cringed and thought, not you too. And the priest said, Ben Hooper, you are a beloved 
child of God. And for Ben Hooper, that's all he needed to therefore put his shoulders back and with confidence and courage and realness, be Ben Hooper, the beloved child of God. And incidentally, it was from that place that he became the congressman for Tennessee, Google him. He knew when he heard those words, he was a beloved child of God. And when we go into the wilderness knowing that, we will come into all kinds of wild, weird beasts and angels who will tend to us. I texted Andrea yesterday and I said to her, I believe in God. I haven't told her why yet, but here's the answer, Andrea. I was writing my sermon and something popped up from the Naramata Center. I don't always read what they send me, but there was a poem by Jan Richardson and here's the poem. Beloved is where we begin. If you would enter into the wilderness, do not begin without a blessing. Do not leave without hearing you are beloved, named by the one who has traveled this path before you. Do not go without letting go, letting it echo in your ears. And if you find it hard to let it into your heart, do not despair. That is what the journey is for. I cannot promise this blessing will free you from danger, from fear, from hunger, or thirst, from scorching of the sun or the fall of the night. But I can tell you that on this path, there will be help. I can tell you that on this way, there will be rest. I can tell you that you will know strange graces that come into our aid on the road such as this, that fly to meet us bearing comfort and strength, that come alongside us for no other cause than to lean themselves toward our ear and with their curious insistence, whisper our name. Beloved. 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 Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.